Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Today, I'm going to do a deep dive on emotion-focused therapy. This is particularly for patrons Amy and Benedict and several other listeners who have requested that I do a deep dive on emotion-focused therapy. It's, it's one of the most prominent models of therapy today. I use it all the time. I actually use it on myself all the time. It's a, it's a powerful model for understanding the way we react to each other, particularly when we're having problems in our uh, marriages in particular. And it's a powerful model for improving our relationships. It um, elegantly explains why we get so angry at each other, particularly our spouses, as I was saying, but even in any relationship, whether it's at work or anything like that. And emotion-focused therapy, or EFT, it, it provides an, an extremely useful and, to some extent, sim- simple way to reduce that anger that we have towards each other and learn how to, how to love each other better and, and how to have more healthy relationships. It's, it's really no joke, and, and it's why it's so popular in the couple and family therapy world. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the history, the theory itself, the key ideas, the technique, how, how to be an EFT therapist. The I'm going to talk about the evidence of its effectiveness, and I'm going to provide my take on it because I have a lot of takes on it. <laughs> and I'm also going to talk about how you could use these techniques on yourself, which is what I do all the time. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and I'm also a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, then this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of this podcast called Psychology in Seattle, and you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes, including this one, in which we do deep dives into various topics, sometimes related to psychotherapy and sometimes not so related to psychotherapy. Like, I recently did a deep dive on Game of Thrones character The Hound, Sander Clegane, which is a patron-exclusive episode. And also remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone people. We love you so much. Just a little update on our patron count. I think we're we're up to 570 patrons. My goodness. I am just so amazed that you guys like the show that much. <laughs> um, so thank you so much. Let's let's pick a couple people on Patreon to, to send them some swag. I'm always worried I'm going to send the same person swag twice. So <laughs> if that ever happens, let me know. I'm, uh, but uh, so let's look at people with, with pictures because I, I like to see your mugs. How about patron John here? Patron John in New Jersey. We got patron Kelly in New Hampshire. And we also have patron Dr. Glenn from California. I'll send you guys some swag. We also have patron Annie in Texas. And let's see. Let's look down here. Patron Jamie. I know patron Jamie in, in Tacoma. Patron Jamie has a picture of her graduation, it looks like. 
she's looking good there in her robes and in her um, cap and gown, as they call it. So I'm going to send some swag to you all. All right, let's get into emotion-focused therapy here. So first off, I just want to provide a few caveats before moving forward. This is my take on EFT. It's I, I can't help but to filter it through my own way of seeing the world. So I'm going to be using different words than other people are going to use. I'm also, not all the time, obviously, but some of the time. Uh, and I'm going to be infusing my own belief system into it because I can't, if I'm going to talk about it in a way that ha- has life to it, I need to be involved in it myself, my own personality. And therefore, it's going to get a little kirkified, if that makes any sense. Kirkified, that's that's a funny word. Um, it feels narcissistic to say such a thing, but um, I hope you get my meaning. Also, there are different camps within EFT, emotion-focused therapy, and I don't have time to differentiate all of them, and it's not actually that interesting to differentiate all of them, in my opinion. So I'm going to basically present Sue, Sue Johnson's model and, and, again, my version of it. Sue, Susan Johnson, or Sue Johnson, is the main founder and figurehead, current figurehead of emotion-focused therapy. She's really charismatic and prolific in writing and speaking, and she's she's been on every psychology podcast except for mine. <laughs> for some reason, I never really reach out to these famous people. I probably should. But anyway, I kind of feel like other podcasts are, are doing that kind of stuff, and, and I feel like they do it pretty well. Dr. Dave, for instance, he interviews all those super famous people, and I'm sure Sue Johnson's been on his podcast, and, and I, figure, I, I figure this podcast should do something different than that. And so anyway, let me know what you think about that. But anyway, uh, so I'm going to be basically presenting a, a modified, my own version of Sue Johnson's model. The other thing I should say is that my mother's name is Sue Johnson. <laughs> so it's always weird to talk about Sue Johnson and EFT without thinking of my mom. But Johnson is her maiden name. She obviously now goes by Sue Honda. And she's a patron of the podcast. So she might be listening to this right now. Hi, Mom. And you can actually find her sometimes on the Psychology in Seattle Facebook page. Actually, you can see several of my family members on the Tougher Bluff uh, game. If you go there, we play Tougher Bluff every Tuesday. We play Tuesday Tougher Bluff. But anyway, so Sue Johnson is my mom's name, and it's always funny to talk about EFT. And it's funny when I, whenever I tell students or other clinicians that my mom's name is actually Sue, Susan Johnson, they completely freak out. It's like saying that you have a dad named Paul McCartney or Barack Obama or something, you know, people are like, Oh my God, your dad's name is Barack Obama. Just like the president. That's crazy. So anyway, another caveat is that there's a bunch of technical language in EFT that people use, particularly Sue Johnson, incidentally, but that language kind of annoys me. So I'm not going to use it. I mean, I understand the premise behind it, but I, I, I find it to distract me from the purpose of the language. Like they have terms like problematic reaction point or self-interruption split. And, you know, I suppose if I became like a super dedicated purist of EFT, all these terms would be helpful to me. But whenever I have 
like there's this there's videos of Susan Johnson providing therapy to couples and every every five seconds it seems I'm probably exaggerating another one of these terms will sort of flash on the screen to tell you like what's happening in that moment and it just it pulls me out of the therapeutic moment to be constantly um, labeling everything that's happening in therapy with these weird terms I think it stems from the fact that EFT is it, it was born out of research and it was born out of observing couples as they interacted. And one of the things you do when you're a researcher and you're researching relationships and human behavior is you have to have a way of labeling certain behaviors. And so through their research and observing people, they, they develop this language as a way of, of codifying the interactions between people, which, which is fine for research. But Again, when it comes to psychotherapy, I find it to be distracting and and also a little. Uh, it I think it obscures the real meaning and foundation of EFT. Just my opinion. Uh, another caveat is I'm I'm also I'm not going to I'm not going to present the stages of EFT. It's often presented in the literature as being a stage oriented therapy. You know, like. Phase one of therapy involves these things and da da da. da. I, I actually hate stages of therapy because clients rarely fit neatly into these stages. In my experience, Th- therapy is much more individual and much more uh, varied than that. And it's much more intuitive than following stages. So I'm not going to be talking about the stages. Uh, but I will be talking about a lot of the theory. And I think if you understand the theory, it, it, it will tell you how to apply that to the different phases, quote unquote, of therapy. I don't think you need to be told the stages. Anyway, also another caveat, final caveat, it it should be noted that EFT is really effective with some presenting problems and probably not so effective with other presenting problems. For example, it's really effective both empirically and in my experience with family conflict and with with conflict in marriages and in couple relationships. It's also effective with people who are isolating because they are hurt by people. So people who have been hurt by people in the past and are who are isolating, EFT can be very effective for them. It, it's been shown to be effective with depression, which is interesting. Particularly, my guess is, is that it's effective with depression that is caused by past relationships. So if someone's been through a number of relationships in their life, including their childhood, that basically is the genesis of their depression, then EFT can be very helpful for that. And it's also effective with relational trauma in terms of helping people to improve their current relationships and their and their understanding of their own emotions. However, it's probably not effective with things like psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, it's probably not an effective therapy. It's probably not an effective primary therapy for PTSD. I know that Sue Johnson included and a bunch of other people would contest what I just said, but I'm just using my own experience in that and, and the evidence uh, as well. A lot of times whenever a model comes out, the proponents will say it's good for everything. They'll just say like EFT. Oh my God, it's, it'll solve all the world's problems. And it's it's it really confuses things because 
what therapists end up doing is they end up adopting that point of view. But as you, as listeners to this podcast know, in order to become, I think, the best therapist, I follow in John Norcross's shoes, who promotes integration and the tailoring of therapy to the particular client situation. So EFT, for me, is one of those major theories that I apply. But I also look towards psychodynamic, interpersonal, relational, systemic, cognitive, narrative, solution focus, collaborative, brief, uh, what am I leaving out here, behaviorism, cognitivism, um, neuro stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, I integrate all of it, and, and EFT is definitely one of them. So particularly with the sort of clients that I see, because I don't see psychotic clients. I don't see bipolar clients. I, um, I do treat PTSD, but I don't use EFT with PTSD anyway. So just understand that EFT is perhaps the most effective therapy when it comes to family conflict and the, the kinds of, the kinds of problems that emerge out of relational, uh, insecurity, attachment, insecurity but it's probably not effective with other things. Okay. So where does emotion-focused therapy fit within the therapeutic world? Well, it's, it's not super popular in the general therapy world. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that most therapists are only vaguely aware of it. If we just took a, a sampling of every kind of therapist around the world, for instance, it's, it's often not included in theory books. You know, if you have a if you have a psychotherapy theory book, you have to have cognitive therapy, you have to have behavioral therapy, you have to have psychoanalysis or psychodynamic therapy. But sometimes, uh, and a lot of times, emotion focused therapy is not included. So it's not it's not hugely prominent yet. Maybe in fifty years it will be, but I don't know. But in in the family therapy world, it's it's huge. EFT is huge in the family therapy world, particularly in the couples therapy world. I mean, along with Gottman's model, John Gottman's model here at the University of Washington, EFT is probably the most popular theory of of therapy within family therapy and within uh, particularly couples therapy. For example, in my family therapy course, I, I spend a pretty good amount of time talking about EFT. But I also talk about CBT, I also talk about psychodynamic family therapy, and I also talk about solution-focused. So, so that should put it into perspective. For me, I, I only with my applied family therapy course, I only have a certain amount of time and I, and with these students in that, in that course over the term. And so I couldn't, if I had it my way, I'd have them for five years and I would teach them in-depth all of the different major theories, including EFT. But because I only have, because we're on a quarter system, I only have 10 weeks with them. I, I had to limit my scope to just basically four different areas of family therapy. And so I, so the first uh, theory I go into is solution focused therapy. Cause I, it's a, it's a powerful model of therapy that really every therapist should know, regardless of who they treat. And it's often called upon in family therapy, particularly when you have defiant teenagers, because you have a defiant teenager who doesn't want to be in therapy, and you have parents who are basically being dragged into therapy by the, by the therapist. And Solution Focus is a really good brief model that 
helps people to find solutions to their own problems in this really quick way. And it also releases the therapist from having to uh, be responsible for the client's uh, stage of change. Anyway, the point is, as I talk about social focus, then I talk about cognitive behavioral family therapy, which a lot of therapists will use. I, I, I mean, I should also say I also talk about just general family systems theory, uh, but I also talk about EFT or experiential therapies. And because I consider EFT to be a, a like I said, just a major helpful thing when it comes to helping people. I also consider CBT to be helpful. I also consider social focus. And then the final theory I go into is psychodynamic uh, theory, which I use kind of my own version of systemic projective identification between people. Anyway, so for you theory nerds out there, uh, that's for you. But anyway, the, the point is, is that EFT is, is, a, is a minor figure in the overall field of psychotherapy, but a major player in the field of family therapy and couples, and couples therapy. Emotion-focused therapy is considered by many to be a family therapy. It's considered to be a couples therapy, and it's considered to be an experiential therapy. So even though EFT can absolutely be used with individuals, it's usually not associated with individual therapy. And I'll get more into that later. Some consider EFT to be, EFT to be an integration of Rogers and of Pearls and existential and psychodynamic and cognitive therapies. I would say it also has elements of narrative therapy, behaviorism, Nage, systems theory, Bowlby, obviously. Um, some might find it difficult to differentiate EFT from other experiential therapies or family therapies or even humanistic therapies in general. For example, when I first heard about EFT in the 90s, it was developed in the 80s, but it became popular in the later 90s, according to my understanding, my view of our culture in family therapy. So when I first heard about it in the 90s, I thought, well... So I should I should tell you this actually. So when I first heard about it in the '90s, uh, I was not super excited about EFT, mainly because when I read about it, I said, "Well, EFT, Susan Johnson, she's just she's just plagiarizing other people's work." That that's how I felt about it at first, and because you know, every year another per, there's probably dozens of new therapy theories that are published and only a few of them managed to emerge. And so when I first heard about EFT, I thought, Oh, this is never going to catch on because it's, it's so obviously a ripoff of all these other theories, which, which I think Susan Johnson and Les Greenberg would actually attest to. I think they would say, sure. Yeah, we ripped off a lot of things. So when I first came across it, I, I thought, well, even though I just learned about EFT, I have been using the the foundation. I have integrated a very similar approach to clients myself, and I'm not unique in that way. I, I I saw myself as like, well, if if you're a therapist and you pay attention to your clients and you pay attention to the other theories that that sort of influence EFT, then in a way, we're all kind of EFT therapists. So uh, let me. I don't think I explained this very well, but. So for whatever reason in the late 90s, even though I had never heard of EFT before and no one had ever taught me about EFT, I had already been integrating elements of attachment, uh, satire, humanistic therapies, Rogers, 
uh, a certain emotional schema therapy situation, mainly because I was influenced by all these different people that EFT people were influenced by. And I was interacting with clients and learning, oh, this attachment stuff is really powerful. So again, when I heard about EFT, I was just like, oh, well, this is kind of dumb. They're just, they're just describing what is really natural for a lot of family therapists to be doing anyway. So I'm guessing that the reason why EFT became so popular is because many of the theories that EFT comes from are not very well described. A lot of the humanistic experiential therapies were basically based on a charismatic leader like Fritz Perls, and they don't really lay out a specific theory or a specific technique. In fact, a lot of these people of the 60s and and early 70s were were really against trying to technicify their their theory. And so EFT comes along and technicifies all this stuff and I think that's why it became really popular. And also they were really in, interested in providing evidence for the model, which again humanistic therapies were not so interested in in the beginning. And the last caveat that I'll say, <laughs> there's been many caveats so far. The last caveat I'll say is that there are other forms of EFT. There's like subforms that even Les Greenberg has has formulated. For instance, I have a book called Narrative Informed Emotion Focused Therapy, and it's by Lynn Angus and Les Greenberg. Narrative Informed Emotion Focused Therapy. So, so it's you know there's there's been a lot of writing and a lot of thinking about it, but I'm going to be providing basically the core of it, which actually isn't that complicated. All right. So before getting into the theory, let's let's go into the history here for a second. So EFT, you could argue, has its roots going back to Freud and Jung and Adler and Ferenczi and then later people like Fairburn and Sullivan for sure and Kohut and obviously Bowlby, John Bowlby. And then John uh, or Leslie Greenberg or Les, Les Greenberg comes along. He's he's considered to be the founder of EFT. He was born in 1945 in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he loved math and physics. So he became an engineer as a young man, but he realized that he was unhappy. So he decided to change careers and maybe look into a career that could address his unhappiness. In the night in the 1960s, in his 20s, he be he came to the U.S. and and Canada, and he entered the Ph.D. program at York University in Canada. He became a student of Laura Rice, who had been trained by Carl Rogers. And he discovered that happiness and contentment can occur when we allow ourselves to express our emotions. So he was influenced by Carl Rogers, but then he started really thinking about emotions and he started to really realize, man, this emotion stuff is very powerful for me and for other people. He became a client-centered therapist, and then he switched to Gestalt. He was very interested in Fritz Perl's work and, and Gestalt therapy, experiential, in-the-now, emotional work, this kind of thing. And then he trained, actually, as an extern. He had an externship at the Mental Research Institute, or MRI, in Palo Alto, California. The MRI was the epicenter of family therapy at the time. And so he, he had these three major influences, Carl Rogers through his professor, Laura Rice, and then Gestalt therapy because Fritz Perls was big at the time. 
And then for some reason, I don't, I don't know exactly why, but he, he went to the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto and was influenced by those, all those powerful people in family therapy back then. He eventually became a professor at the University of British Columbia nearby here in Seattle. He later became a professor at York University, and he wrote about his brand of therapy called Process Experiential Therapy, which was later renamed Emotion Focused Therapy, or EFT. So going back to when he was at the University of British Columbia in the 1980s, Les Greenberg met Sue Johnson. She was a student in his program at UBC. And together, they, as she was a student and later as she graduated, they expanded EFT to couples relationships and they called it emotionally focused couples therapy. It's really common for, for students and professors to get together this way because when students and PhD students are uh, students, they need to develop their own unique research. They need to add new knowledge to the field and they need to work with professors in order to get approval and guidance and all that kind of stuff. And students will often seek out a professor who is an expert in their preferred research area. And so my guess is, is that Sue Johnson was really interested in couples therapy and emotions and gestalt therapy and all this kind of stuff and befriended her professor, Les Greenberg, and then worked together pretty closely on on research. Les Greenberg probably worked with a lot of other students too. And then Sue Johnson became an expert through her studies and through her research as a student. And then after graduation, she probably just continued that relationship with her mentor, Les Greenberg, uh, as a way of developing her career. So just a little bit about Sue Johnson. She was born in England and eventually moved to Canada. She, she said that she grew up in an English pub. I, I don't know if that means her parents owned a pub or what, but she said she grew up in an English pub and she would watch people in and, and the pub and she was fascinated with the people and their dramas and their relationships. Sue Johnson in Canada graduated from, again, the University of British Columbia in 1984 with a doctorate in counseling psychology. And Sue Johnson was and still is a clinical psychologist. She's a researcher, an author, a professor, a speaker. She's one of the most interesting people to listen to. Uh, I've I've seen many interviews and and talks that she's given, and and she she lays out the theory very effectively, and she also will credit where she got it from. You know, she doesn't just say, I invented this. You know, she, she credits Les Greenberg. She credits John Bowlby, blah, blah, blah. Uh, she was a professor at the University of Ottawa, and she's currently a professor at Alliant University in, in San Diego, California. Uh, although she might still be at University of Ottawa as well. I don't know. She's won a number of awards. For example, just last year, 2016, she was named Psychologist of the Year by the American Psychological Association. That's a big deal. Psychologist of the Year. Wow. She's been recognized by the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy, or AAMFT, many, many times. Uh, she got an award for Outstanding Contribution to the Field of Couple and Family Therapy. She has a best-selling book that actually was popular among non-clinicians called Hold Me Tight, published in 2008. It's a self-help book about her model of couples therapy. So she wrote this book with the intention of helping people to uh, use this book as a self-help tool to improve their relationships. And it, and 
I would say it's it's a great book. You should check it out. Hold Me Tight, published 2008, Susan Johnson. She currently lives in Ottawa with her husband, and she apparently likes to dance tango dance, <laughs> uh, which I'm having a hard time imagining. Um, but uh, there you go. So, so Sue Johnson, in the mid-'80s, after graduating from UBC, where she was taught by Les Greenberg, I assume, Johnson, Sue Johnson modified EFT, modified Les Greenberg's model by, 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 it should be another caveat here is that Les Greenberg didn't work on EFT all by himself. He had other people helping him research and, and helping him develop his theory. So, and Sue Johnson as well. So, but, but these are the two main figures and these are the people that are typically pointed to when, when we're talking about EFT. But anyway, so Sue Johnson modified emotion-focused therapy originally created by Les Greenberg and other people. And Sue Johnson modified it by emphasizing attachment. So, so before EFT was focused on emotion, and it was, it was sort of a, like I said, a version of gestalt and systems and person-centered. And, but Sue Johnson was the one who really... It, it infused attachment or put attachment emotions at its center. In writing her thesis while getting her doctorate, uh, Johnson became much more interested in how attachment played a role in people's relationships, which which one could say is a female perspective, right? You know, since women are generally socialized to pay more attention to relationships and men are more socialized to, to focus on the individual process. So it, it took a woman, you could say, to come to EFT and really say, well, you know what, this theory is great, but it could be so much better if you focused on attachment needs. You know, I know you talk about attachment, but if we really brought that to the forefront, this could be very powerful. So uh, thank God for that. Uh, this was a new perspective in general. At the time in, in the 1980s, psychoanalysis was prime, you know, it's hard to it's hard to characterize different forms of therapy because there's a lot of different people with a lot of different ideas. But in general, psychoanalysis, psychodynamic therapy was focused on interpretation. It's not so much anymore, but back then it was. Behaviorism at the time in the 80s was focused on learned behavior and on reinforcement and that kind of stuff. Cognitivism was focused on cognitions, obviously. And, and family therapy was really focused in the 80s on behavioral patterns within relationships. Satir wasn't so much that way, but, but a lot of other people were, uh, this, you know, Mnuchin, these kind of people. Bowen was focused on differentiation. Humanistic people were focused on positive regard and responsibility and existentialism and self-exploration and the realization of the self. And not a lot of people were focused on attachment. So, so when Sue Johnson really brought that to the forefront of, of emotionally focus of emotion focused therapy. And when she started to research it along with Les Greenberg Greenberg, and when she started to talk about it at family therapy conventions and started writing articles and stuff, it became a, it became instantly a hit because of its power. So soon after Sue Johnson got her doctorate in 1985, Sue Johnson and Greenberg began to formulate and test this modified version of Les Greenberg's model of EFT that had more attachment focus. It, 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 in a way, I, I kind of wish emotion-focused therapy was called attachment-focused therapy because it's, um, it's, so, it's, it's such a central feature, but anyway... 
in Johnson and Greenberg's formulation, they were again pulling from humanistic experiential psychotherapies like Carl Rogers and Fritz Perls. They were also influenced by systems approaches and they by they studied their model by by creating a uh, they're trying to create a manualized version of it because that was when uh, evidence-based therapies were really coming into vogue and they reviewed videos of sessions of couples uh, in therapy and tried to figure out what worked in couples therapy which is similar to what Carl Rogers would do and so this is where all that that codified language comes up in terms of labeling different interactions between clients and and in therapy so fast forward about 10 years in the mid-90s, EFT had become a major player in the family therapy world. For example, when I took my licensing exam in 1999, five of the questions were on emotion-focused therapy, even though I had barely heard of it before. Actually, I was really pissed that those questions were on the national exam in 1999 because no one had prepared me for that possibility. I had hired my one of my mentors, Bill Forche, to train me on the exam. And he gave me, you know, here's all the questions that might be on there. Here are the areas you need to study and da, 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 da. And I did all that. And then when I, uh, this is, so in 19, now when you take the licensing, licensing exam, it's obviously on a computer, right? You go to a testing center and you sit down at a computer and you answer the questions. Well, in 1999, it was still it was still pen and paper, and so they just handed you a handout. So just picture that, and it was in Olympia, Washington, because that's where this state capital is. But anyway, and so it's a four hour test, and took me months to to study for it. And I sit down, and I'm and I'm reading each question, and I'm like, okay, you know, I think I'm doing pretty good. And then I get to this section on EFT, and I'm like, what? I didn't study EFT. And I was barely aware of it and probably got all those questions wrong. But anyway, what that tells you is two things. One is is that uh, my mentor should have told me about EFT. <laughs> the other thing is that EFT was so popular in the couple and family therapy world that it was included in the national exam for licensure, which is, which is a big deal you know, to, to have it on there with the likes of Mnuchin and other kinds of people is an indication of just how how quickly it caught on in the couple and family therapy world. Um, the other thing it should uh, tell us is that it was a time in which there were some programs that weren't really hip to EFT yet. When I got my master's in couple and family therapy, it's actually a master's in psychology, but it, um, but it's a it was geared towards couple and family therapy. But anyway, the point is is that when I went to school, no one talked about EFT. So, but today it's in every marriage and family therapy program, I'm guessing EFT is talked about quite extensively. So it was in that, in that transition period in the nineties in which it was sort of catching on, but the professors hadn't really caught up to the trend yet, but the licensing board was catching on anyway. So today, Susan Johnson's model is much more popular than Greenberg's model even though they have the same name, which makes it confusing. So it's, it's like they're, Susan Johnson has a model called emotion-focused therapy. Les Greenberg has a model called emotion-focused therapy. Some consider them to be the same, and other people consider them to be very different. So, uh, you know, just take that 
with a grain of salt. Also, uh, Les Greenberg and Susan Johnson are still around. Les Greenberg would be about 72 years old right now. He is currently the director of the emotion-focused therapy clinic housed at York University. You can actually see him on YouTube and Susan Johnson on YouTube if you Google them. So check it out. Okay, so let's talk about the key ideas. Let's get into the theory finally here. All right. So EFT is obviously focused on emotion. It's called emotion-focused therapy. So there's a no duh on that one. But what does that mean exactly? Well, it basically means that instead of, instead of uh, saying that our experience of the world is dictated by our personality or by our cognitions or by our behavioral learning, what they say is, is that our experience of the world is determined primarily by our experience of our emotions, which you could say in a, like an example of this is it's not that Donald, for instance, Donald Trump, all of us have a particular emotional reaction to him. And so if he were to get up on stage and give a speech, our, our emotional schema or our emotional experience or our emotional narratives that we have about Trump and about ourselves and about politics all play a major role in how we experience Trump. For some people, when they see Trump, they think of him as a savior in terms of he's going to be the, the, the golden boy of politics and really help them. Other people consider him literally to be the embodiment of evil. And so it, so one, we, the the reality of Trump is a thing. There's a there's a there's a man called Donald Trump who is giving a speech on stage, but everyone's experience of it is based on their emotional reactions. Now, cognitive therapists would say, well, it's not really based on emotions; it's based on your cognitive idea of of Trump, which dictates your emotions. But emotion focused therapy is like, no, it it you know the cognition is not the thing to focus on. The, fo- the thing to focus on is the emotional experience, which I could go into the whole debate regarding emotion versus cognition and all that stuff, but I'm not going to. Uh, emotion-focused therapy, it's focused on emotion in the way that we have emotional schema, as I was talking about. Basically, as we, are, uh, as we grow up and as we experience our world and our relationships, we start to develop these schemas that that construct our world in an emotional way. Like for instance, uh, if you associate, I don't know if you, well, I'm not going to go into it just yet because it'll come become clear more, more in the future. But anyway, the, the point is, is that the emotional schema is the basis of, of our lives, of our experience. And it, and it's not, our personality or our cognitive schema, uh, if that makes any sense. I'll get more into that in a second. Okay. So, so anyway, just know that emotion focused therapy, it's one of its main ideas is that, that began the whole thing is that our experience is based on emotion and not on personality, not on, not on cognitions, not on behaviorism. It's based on emotions. That's why it's called emotion focused. Okay. So another major tenet of emotion-focused therapy, particularly Sue Johnson's brand of it, is attachment, as I've been talking about. This is a central idea in EFT. And to me, I consider EFT, Susan Johnson's version of it, to be an application of 
it's it's basically Bowlby's attachment theory applied, which um, make which is why it's so powerful because attachment theory is so powerful. So our emotions are central to our experience, and attachment is central to emotions. This is this is this is my language totally. I, this is I did not read this. This is how I see it. So emotion focus. So you could you almost think about it as Les Greenberg came along and said, "Look, we have to not think about cognitions or." or personality or the self and this, we really need to think about emotions and our emotional experience. And then Sue Johnson came around and said, not only do we need to focus on emotions, but we really need to focus on the emotions associated with attachment. That's what we need to be focusing, focusing on. So anyway, um, so at, at this, this is, this is the powerful idea here. Okay. So we need attachment security. We all need to feel as though, someone loves us or a set of people love us they're that they're dedicated to us one could imagine again it's impossible to measure this or to scientifically evaluate this hypothesis but one could imagine that we as a social species evolved to be very dependent on our attachment relationships i've talked about this before again pure speculation because there's no way to test this but you can imagine that us uh, as a species in the early days and even going back to our common ancestries with chimps and bonobos. But you can imagine that we uh, were selected for a trait in which we were uh, very much geared toward attaching ourselves to people who are close to us. And we were very much interested in making sure that we weren't rejected by the tribe and that we that we were accepted by them emotionally because when that attachment system was working well, then people would look out for us. They would groom us. They would feed us if we we're hungry. They would protect us from predators. And when the, that attachment system was going badly, then we were more likely to get killed and less, you know, more likely to die of starvation or something. And so, we humans evolved from that and have that that basic need of attachment and attachment security. And when we feel secure in our attachments with our spouses and with our family members and our friends and people we work with, frankly, we experience much less dysfunction in our lives. We're less depressed. We're less anxious. We're let, we have less uh, relationship problems and, and so on. So... So the question is, how can we establish a more consistent feeling of attachment security in our lives? That, that's the central question of Susan Johnson's version of EFT. So it's about, it's about so he, here is the absolute key of EFT to me. EFT is about knowing your attachment needs moment by moment. So when you're interacting with, so I'm going to couch a lot of this in, in within spousal relationships, but it really applies to any relationship. But so when you're sitting down with your partner, moment by moment, particularly if there's uh, some problems happening, well, it, think about it as, as in conflict happening between spouses and also when you are... Uh, just interacting in a more intense way, whether it's through love or through conflict. Okay. So in those moments, each of us needs to know and be, or strive to be aware 
of our attachment needs moment by moment, not our general attachment needs, which, which will help. But we need to understand moment by moment. For, for example, and I'll get more into this later, but for example, you are, let me think of a simple sort of interaction. So, so you are, uh, you're, you're at work and it's a, it's a Thursday afternoon and you miss your spouse because you haven't had a lot of close interaction time with your spouse and you're at work and you're sitting there and your spouse pops into your head and you're just thinking, Oh, I, you know, I, I, I miss that person. I want to, I want to reach out to them. And so you text your spouse, you're like, Hey, what's up? Well, in that moment, you knew that you were having an upwelling of a feeling of a need to attach, a, a need for reassurance, a need for interaction with your spouse that would facilitate your attachment security with that person. You noticed it in that moment and you acted on it. Okay, so, and then uh, scenario two is you you have that upwelling of feeling, but you're not very aware of your attachment needs or say you have a value of being extremely independent, pathologically independent. And so that, that upwelling of feeling occurs and you get that urge to reach out to your spouse because because you because you, you just want to have that that little jolt of attachment security, and you ignore it because you just have a general policy of ignoring things like that. So so that's a simple example of uh, of EFT's um, tenant of knowing your attachment needs. Okay, uh, another and of course you know that the variability of that is you know, infinite, you know, imagine you're in a conflict and your spouse rolls their eyes at you. Well, that will challenge your attachment security in that moment. And so knowing that in that moment, it's all about attachment is, is part of the struggle. The other thing about EFT is you have to perceive the other person's attachment needs as they are occurring moment by moment. So again, going back to this example, you're the spouse of the texter. So you received a you receive a text from your spouse. Say you're you're working hard and you're in the flow, and ding ding, you get this text from your spouse, and they're like, um, "Hey, what's up?" Well, in that moment, there's no indication that your spouse is looking for attachment security. What's what's literally being communicated is. Hey, what's up? What are you doing? What's going on? It's it's just a question on its face. And so if taken literally, then the spouse will say like, well, this could wait until tonight or they might respond nothing, <laughs> working hard or something. But the perceptive spouse, depending on the history of these people and their routines of asking for attention, bids as Gottman will call them. Then the person, if they are accurate, they'll perceive this, hey, what's up, as a bid for connection. It's not a literal question, what's up? It's actually underneath that question is a, is a, is a to some extent, a somewhat obvious expression of the other person's need for attachment security. And so that person who receives the text if they perceive it right, then they will respond 
then they have a, an opportunity or a choice to respond in kind by taking a second and saying, uh, not much. Uh, how are you thinking about you? Love you. See you tonight or something, you know? So now this isn't to say that whenever you get a text from your spouse, you have to respond, but, um, you know, maybe there's times when you're just not, when it's just not possible, you're busy or something. But the point is, is that, that, uh, it's in, it's incredibly important in EFT that you know your attachment needs moment by moment. And most people, in my experience, are completely unaware of their attachment needs because it's just not something we talk about in our culture, and it's not something we really talk about with our kids. Also, so it's not about knowing your own attachment needs, but it's also about perceiving the attachment need expressions from other people and responding with empathy uh, and with attachment enhancing behaviors. EFT is also about effectively communicating your attachment needs. So let's go back to this text uh, situation. So let's say that you, you know, you say you, you have an upwelling of feeling where you want to reach out and get reassurance from your spouse that you're still connected and you say, Hey, what's up? And then your spouse is busy and doesn't interpret it well and, and just says, nothing, I'm busy, see you tonight. And then you see that text and, and you're hurt. You're like, why did they say that? Why couldn't they be nicer? Why didn't they know that I wanted something more than that? Okay. So then you go home and you're, you're hurt and you're pissed off and you are a little short with your spouse and your spouse is, is saying, why are you angry at me? What's going on? And then you say, well, it's because, you know, today when I texted you, you just completely blew me off. And your, your spouse is like, what do you mean I blew you off? You, you, all you said was, hey, what's up? And I said, I'm working. Uh, I'll see you tonight. Uh, how did I blow you off? Well, in this, in this instance, this is, a, this is where uh, the, the, you know, the, the first person, the, the person who texted, they need to think about how to communicate their attachment needs. And what, they, what they've learned in this situation is that, hey, what's up, doesn't fully communicate their attachment needs. So maybe a, a more effective way in the future, again, every couple is different, every individual is different, but just using this example, this person might say, oh, I ineffectively communicated my attachment needs by saying, hey, what's up? What I should have sent was, hey, miss you, love you, or hey, ha- um, I'm feeling a little disconnected lately. Um, I, could you reassure me that we're still in love with each other? <laughs> I mean, that's a little dramatic, but my point is, is that if you, when you notice your attachment needs, you have to effectively communicate them in order to get your attachment needs met. So that's your responsibility. The fourth thing here is that you have to effectively attend to other people's attachment needs. So again, this is my take on it. It's it's probably very consistent with EFT, but this is just want to remind people this is my way of just describing it. So again, you have to know your attachment needs. You have to perceive other people's attachment needs, their expression of their attachment needs. You have to effectively communicate your attachment needs, and you also have to effectively t- attend to other people's attachment needs. So going back to the example of the text, uh, you receive a text from your spouse saying, hey, what's up? And you know from the past that this is a bid for connection. 
And so you say to the person, um, uh, yeah, uh, not much. Um, not much is not much is going on today at work. Working hard. Uh, hey, I miss you, and I let's let's make sure we connect tonight because we haven't really had a date night or whatever. So that that would be not only are you good at perceiving the other person's bid for connection, but you're also uh, potentially effective in attending to it. So it's not just about perceiving, but you also have to attend well to it, which is a which is a very difficult skill to develop which I'll get into more in a second. And then the fifth thing is that you have to establish routines of effective attachment enhancing behaviors. So it's not about just noticing and effectively doing things, but it's about establishing routines that you engage in that you know you can depend on uh, to enhance attachment and attend to ongoing attachment needs. So for instance, in the hey what's up example, maybe hey what's up becomes a routine between this couple that they both know hey what's up means that they would like some connection in that moment. You know, maybe for them uh, over time they they learn, "Oh, hey hey what's up to us means I miss you, I love you and I'm feeling a little distant right now." So so that's that's just a you know a crude example of that. Okay. So again, to review, key ideas. It's focused on emotion, no duh. And it's focused on attachment with those five areas. Know your attachment needs, perceive others, effectively communicate your attachment needs, effectively attend to other people's attachment needs, and establish routines of effective attachment enhancing behaviors. How does EFTC dysfunction? You know, every therapy theory has to comment at least a little bit on why dysfunction emerges. And what EFT people will say is that dysfunction in people's lives is maintained by patterns of interactions that are not very emotionally aware, if that makes any sense. In other words, and this is my language, is that particularly sticking with the the family conflict or the marital conflict uh, situation presenting problem. In in my opinion, and I'm guessing in EFT, uh, it's consistent with EFT, that there's a logic to why people act in destructive ways. And it's usually governed by attachment insecurity. Um, So, and I'll get more to that in a second. Okay. Now, what is EFT not? Well, EFT emerged again in the 80s, and it was, to some extent, every therapy theory, most therapy theories are a reaction to other established therapy theories. You know, cognitivism was a reaction to behaviorism and all that kind of stuff. Well, EFT was, to some extent, a reaction against psychodynamic therapy, psychoanalysis. It was, it was also a reaction against long-term therapy. And it was, a, it was also a reaction against behaviorism and against cognitivism. And so uh, EFT at its core, so pure EFT, is not interested in insight regarding the past. They're just like, you know, you don't need to talk about your mother to have change happen. EFT was also not very interested in catharsis. They were also not interested in negotiation between family members. In family therapy back in the 80s, it was, it was popular among many people that 
You just needed to help people to negotiate, to to have a tit for tat, quid pro quo kind of thing. But EFT was like, that, look, that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't actually address the the underlying problem, which is people's attachment needs. And EFT is also not about trying to control or suppress your emotions in the way that cognitive and behaviorism is sort of. All right. Uh, so now let's get into the final key area here of the theory. There are four different types of emotions. This is, this is a key. Uh, whenever you talk about EFT, people will talk about this area. So there are four different kinds of emotions. You got primary adaptive emotions, you have primary maladaptive emotions, you have secondary reactive emotions, and you have instrumental emotions. So let's, let's take each one of these at a time. So number one, primary adaptive emotions. These are fundamental emotions, and they happen rapidly. So when you think about the word primary, think about your initial emotional reaction, Primary emotions are things that happened right away. Some, you know, a stimulus happens, an interaction happens, you, you perceive something to happen, and you have a very quick emotional reaction that kicks in automatically to that, to that, to that situation. And, uh, and there are two different kinds of primary emotions. You have, you have adaptive primary emotions and maladaptive primary emotions. And so, so both of these kinds of emotions are knee-jerk reactions. And primary adaptive emotions are initial emotional reactions that have a benefit to you. So, for instance, if you have a loss, like someone uh, says they, they don't want to be with you anymore, then, and, and you feel sadness then this is often considered to be a, so it's a primary reaction because I'm not explaining this very well. So let's say that, say that your spouse says, I want a divorce. Okay. And you have, you have this, you know, enormous knee jerk reaction, feeling of sadness. You start to cry. Well, this is considered to be a primary emotion because it happens right away. And it's adaptive because it motivates you to retain your attachments. When we feel sadness at the prospect of losing someone, that motivates us to reduce sadness by keeping people close to us. And so a lot of times this sadness at, at the prospect of losing someone is adaptive because it, it keeps us close to people and it and it and it maintains attachments. We want to avoid that sadness, and so we try to make sure that we keep our relationships on the up and up. Another example of a primary adaptive emotion is when we are violated, when, when someone walks, say, say someone walks up to us and, and bumps into us, and we get angry. So they bump into us, and they, you know, we're, we're carrying groceries, and our groceries fall on the ground. And we instantly get angry. Well, this anger is adaptive because, so it's a primary emotion because it happens right away. But it's adaptive because if we didn't get angry, we would never protect ourselves from, from violation. So this anger is adaptive because we deserve, when, when we're being treated unfairly and we get angry, that protects us from being treated unfairly. And so anger in that situation is adaptive. 
not all the time, of course, but in that example, we could say that it's adaptive. Also, when we are threatened, when someone comes at us with a knife and we are afraid, then this is also a primary emotion because it happens rapidly. It happens right away. And it's not filtered through anything. It's, a, it's just a baseline emotion. It's like, someone's coming at me with a knife. I'm afraid. Well, what f- th- this fear is primary because it happens right away, but it's also adaptive because it motivates us to run away. If we didn't have any emotion or we got sad or we got angry in that situation, that's not going to help us. Fear is going to help us in that situation. So these are primary adaptive emotions. They're good for us. Okay, now let's talk about primary maladaptive emotions. Again, these are also rapid reactions to a situation, but they interfere with functioning. So maladaptive, meaning they interfere with our lives. And they're usually based on difficulties in the past. They were essentially adaptive at one time, but they are no longer adaptive. So for example, let's say that when you were a child, you were treated unfairly by your parents, but and your parents favored another child over you. And so, you know, your older sister, Jenny, is, is getting all the love and attention, and you don't get any love and attention. And over time, you learn that when Jenny gets attention, that's just another example of how you don't get attention. And so when Jenny, when you're a kid and Jenny gets attention, you get sad. That's your, that's your primary response. You, you look at Jenny getting attention and you get sad. And then as an adult, when someone else gets love and attention, because you've retained this emotion, this emotional schema, that that's what I was talking about. Schema. You have a schema around when other people get love and attention that's bad for me and I feel sad. That's an emotional schema. And so as an adult, when you're no longer around your parents or your sister and someone else at work gets love and attention and then you instantly feel sad, well, this is a primary emotion because it happens right away, but it's maladaptive because it doesn't do you any good in that situation. When you were a kid, it might have done you good because your parents might have noticed you getting sad and might have had compassion for you in that moment and give and gave you a little love and attention. But as an adult, when your coworker gets an award and you get sad, no one, very few people are going to attend to you in that situation because they're like, why are you sad, right? So in this situation, it's primary because it happens right away, but it's maladaptive because it's, it's based on an old situation in which it was adaptive in the past, but it's no longer adaptive. Another, another example is, say you're um, a child again, and you are being abused by your mother, and, you, every, and you, your father never abuses you, but your mother abuses you all the time, physically, emotionally. And so you develop a fear to women, which is adaptive as a child because it keeps you on your toes when you're around your mom. And it says you can relax around your dad. But as an adult, whenever you run into women and you have fear, it's a primary emotion that's based on an emotional schema of the past, but it's maladaptive because most women are not going to harm you. And so your fear when when you're around women is 
is maladaptive. It's a maladaptive primary emotion. Okay, another another one one final example here is is the 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 feeling of shame when you have any emotion. So when most of us are young, we are shamed for having emotions. When we are sad or hungry or even joyful, people will ridicule us or they'll tell us to shut up or they'll tell us to knock it off or something like that. And so we, we are made to feel shame at, our, at, at even just having an emotion. And so with the stimulus of feeling an emotion and then our emotional reaction to that emotion is shame, although you could argue it's a secondary emotion, which we'll get into in a second. But some might consider this to be a primary maladaptive emotion to the stimulus of one's own emotion, if that makes any sense. Okay. So as a child, you're like, well, you know, it, it makes sense that I should feel shameful about my emotions because it reduces my emotional expression, because, and it, which reduces my humiliation that I experience in my life. But as an adult, you don't need to do that anymore in general. Um, to me, uh, the, the most common primary maladaptive emotions have to do with fear of abandonment. Re, you know, going back to that attachment issue of we, we, we so much need attachment with our families and our spouses that the, 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 the most common thing that I see in my clients is that's central to their problems is this fear of abandonment. Okay. So that's primary adaptive emotions and primary maladaptive emotions. Now let's talk about secondary reactive emotions. But uh, just again, chiming in here, caveat or a little check in here is you can see why Les Greenberg called this emotion focused therapy, right? Because it's, it's very focused on emotional experience. Okay. So what is secondary? What's a secondary emotion? Well, a secondary emotion is a reaction to a primary emotion. So you have a primary emotion, and then you have a secondary emotion. And the secondary emotion is, a, is an emotional reaction to the initial emo, knee-jerk emotional reaction. And it's, usually, and it's a defense. It's, it's almost always dysfunctional. Secondary emotions are almost always dysfunctional. And they're, they're often a defense. And they're often influenced by culture and past experience. The most common secondary emotion I see in people, regardless of context, is anger in response to hurt. And let me explain. So when a couple comes into my office and they are talking about a fight that they had in the past, and you know, one says, well, you said this, which is you know, complete bullshit because how dare you say that to me? You say that I don't help around the house. I help around the house all the time. And you are a ridiculous, stupid person. <laughs> okay. Uh, so imagine that scenario. Now, when I investigate these, ex- these expressions, so it's anger, right? We, what we're seeing is anger. This person is angry. And when I ask them, how are you feeling right now? They'll say, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm annoyed. And then I say, okay, angry. What else do they, what else do you feel? They're like, I don't feel anything else. I only feel anger. And then over time, over many sessions, over a lot of exercises of emotional awareness, we start to realize that they, they don't only feel anger. Actually, what they also feel is hurt. 
So what this person is is feeling is hurt that their spouse is accusing them of not helping out around the house. And so their feelings are hurt, which is the primary emotion, which is which is fine. There's nothing wrong with having your feelings hurt. That's normal. When someone accuses you of being a bad person and or lazy or not contributing, that hurts your feelings, especially if you've been really trying to do a good job. So your initial primary adaptive emotion is hurt. And then your secondary emotion is anger. And why do we have anger in response to hurt? Well, in our society, we value anger much higher than we value hurt. We, we don't value anger very much, but we, but we value it a little bit. And we value hurt very, very little. <laughs> Meaning that when when we're growing up, we're taught if you're hurt, that's a, you should, you should suppress that because it, it, it's humiliating. It makes you look weak, quote unquote, blah, blah, blah. But if you're angry, you know, go for it. You get angry sometimes, you know, go for it, get angry. So, be, so because of this, when we're hurt, we're ashamed of our hurt. We feel bad about our hurt and we try to defend against it. We, we even try to mask this hurt from ourselves, from our conscious mind. Again, EFT people wouldn't talk like this, but this is me infusing my language. So we have a defense against that hurt, against that vulnerability. We don't want to admit the fact that we're vulnerable to other people or that we're quote unquote weak. It's not weakness to be hurt. It's normal to be hurt, but it's, it's, it's seen as a weakness. And so what we do is we call upon our anger response as a way to mask our hurt. And we also have this false belief that if we get angry at someone, they will stop hurting us. But actually, that's the opposite is true. The more you get angry at your spouse, the more they're going to do things back to you that are going to hurt you. So I, I, I'm going to just take a guess and say I probably spend 50% of my time with clients on, the, on this single emotion-focused issue. And again, I was focusing on it prior to even knowing EFT exists. So it's not, it's not solely an EFT thing. It's a humanistic thing. It's a gestalt thing. It's a, it's a just kind of an intuitive thing. It doesn't take a genius to understand that. It's, it's, it's even a psychodynamic thing. And so, so I just want to point that out that EFT did not invent this idea. They, they codified it and popularized it in a lot of ways, but it's not, it's not central. It's also kind of an internal family systems idea. You, you internal family systems people out there will recognize a lot in a lot of what I'm saying is related to that. So, so again, just to, just to reiterate this, especially when I'm treating couples and families, one of the most common things that I'm doing is facilitating people in understanding how they are being hurt by people in their families and how they transform that hurt into anger and how this anger makes them lash out against their uh, family members, which may, which hurts the other person's feelings, which they, which they mask with anger and then they lash out. And then the cycle just goes on and on and on. There are, I, I as I say it out loud, I, I'm going to, increase that percentage and say maybe 95% of the time, particularly with couples, this is what I'm doing. Now it's complicated and it takes a lot of work, which we'll get into more in a second, but this, this is why EFT is so powerful is because so much of our lives are a, a function of this problem 
of having our feelings hurt, not being able to admit it, get masking it with a secondary emotion of anger, lashing out at the other person, which hurts their feelings, and they mask with, with anger, they lash out at us, and we get hurt, and we suppress that hurt and hide that hurt, we get angry, and we just, we just go round and round and round. This process leads to most divorces, in my opinion. It leads to most conflict, in my opinion. It leads to most he said, she said arguments. It leads to the most um, negative experience with one's children, honestly. It leads to the uh, depression and anxiety that people experience and isolation and aloneness. It, it contributes to things that happen on the internet. The internet, whenever there's problems on the internet, a lot of anger on the internet is basically just masked hurt. People are getting hurt by things that are happening on the internet instead of just saying that hurt my feelings, they will get angry. And so it's, it's a, it's a powerful idea and you can use it in your own life. If you understand when you're hurt and you can communicate this hurt, it's a powerful way to improve your life because 99.9% of people have empathy for other people. Let me say 99%. A vast majority of human beings have an innate empathy and compassion for other people. And so when when you tell other people and convince them that you are truly hurt by something they did, and you're not accusing them of anything, you're not angry, you're just, you're just saying, man, what you said, it hurt my feelings. And I'm just hurt by it. I don't know what to say. I don't know if I don't know if that's my fault or your fault or I I don't know. I I just have to say that what you said it hurt my feelings. The other person, because they have empathy for human beings, as the vast majority of humans do, they will try to help you. They'll be, oh, I'm sorry for hurting your feelings. I, I I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to. And um, boy, I guess I could see why that would hurt your feelings. I won't do that again. So. That simple, what I just laid out to you, <laughs> that simple back and forth, which, you know, sounds a little corny, but believe me, when you use that language, it can be very powerful. That little interaction, if when, when I am working with couples and families, if I can get them to just have that tiny little shift in their behavior in terms of, hey, that hurt my feelings. Oh my God, I'm sorry. I, I'll try not to do that again. That took me three seconds to, to, to say that back and forth. That alone can solve, I'm not joking, maybe uh, maybe I'll raise it to 100% of people's problems. <laughs> it couldn't be that high, but let's say 95, 98. 98% of people's problems, in my opinion, can be solved with that simple interaction. Ouch, that hurt my feelings. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll try not to do that again. That's That's all it takes. It's magical when it happens. And incredibly hard for people to actually do. I will work with people for years and I will come at it from all angles, but because of their ingrained emotional schemas, as emotional focus therapy would say, and I would say uh, in the psychodynamic language, they have such powerful interjects and, and such powerful, um, internal representations of, of relationships that they're using projective identification to defend against because of these past issues, it makes it almost impossible for people to engage in this functional behavior. But I would say that everyone, no matter how healthy you are, has a problem with this kind of behavior. Everyone 
no matter how mature, no matter how great their childhood was, everyone in our society has been shamed for being hurt. And so therefore everyone can benefit from, from this, from, from EFT and this central uh, aspect of the attachment interactions with any EFT. Ouch, that hurt my feelings. I, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's just me or it's you, but that what you just said, what you just did, or that thing you did yesterday, or that thing you did last year, or that thing you're doing right now, it, it's hurting my feelings. It makes me feel like you don't care about me. The other person, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I did not mean to hurt your feelings. That was not my intention. Uh, I'm a little confused as to why your feelings are hurt right now, but uh, I, I want to know more. Tell, tell me why that hurts your feelings. Cause I, I, it's a mission in my life not to hurt your feelings. And so, um, so, I, so, so there's no shame, you know, the person who has hurt feelings, they're not ashamed that their feelings hurt. The person who, who is being accused of hurting feelings, they're not feeling ashamed. They're like, Oh my God, I didn't mean to. Uh, and I'm sorry. You know, if, if you are walking down the street and you accidentally step on someone's foot, and that person says, ow, you, you stepped on my foot, that hurt. And you turn to that person and you say, fuck off. <laughs> or, you know, stop accusing me of something. It's like, you know, it's, it's not, that we wouldn't do that, right? Most people would be like, oh my God, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your foot. But somehow when it comes to more deeper emotional reactions, we can't do that, right? So to use the metaphor, it's like, you know, someone's walking on the street and they step on your foot and instead of instead of being out that hurt you like flip them off and tell them to go to hell <laughs> you know it's so much more functional just to be like ow you, you stepped on my foot and to give the other person the benefit of the doubt they probably didn't mean to step on your foot right and so you know it all begins with that initial initial reaction of just of just of just admitting your hurt and not being angry and not being accusatory now it's much more complicated than all this because, as I said earlier, anger can be very functional at times. So, so EFT can sometimes be interpreted as saying that anger is always bad. It is not always bad. It is sometimes very useful and very adaptive. But a lot of the reasons why people come to therapy has to do with this hurt-anger cycle. Okay. So that's the third kind of emotions. So again, we had number one, primary adaptive number two, primary maladaptive, and number three, secondary emotions. And number four, we have instrumental emotions. And I rarely think about this kind of emotion in therapy, but it's, it's, a, it's fine to ca- have another category. It's, it's basically fake emotions to manipulate other people. Instrumental emotions are emotions that we drum up as an instrument against other people for some sort of nefarious reason. Okay. So those are the key ideas. Again, focused on emotion, focused on attachment, and really interested in this emotional process that each of us goes through. And to me, the most powerful idea is that hurt-anger cycle uh, and, how it, and how it perpetuates vicious cycles between people. Okay, so now let's talk about the technique. Okay. So technique. Again, as I've been saying throughout this whole episode, this is my take on the technique. So if you talk to other EFT people, you're going to hear something different. And so just take that with a grain of salt. In fact, it, when I read about the technique, as Sue Johnson puts it, 
I take away one thing, but when I see her actually use the technique, I see something very different. So I'm, when I read Sue Johnson's description of the technique of EFT, I'm not quite sure I'm interpreting it right because when I see her demonstrate it, because she has videos where she's demonstrating it with, with couples, I find that she's extremely talkative as a therapist. She, again, this is just my humble opinion, but she seems to dominate the therapy session. She talks over people. She talks probably, she ta- she explains things for really long periods of time. And, and there's this one video I remember in particular where it seems like the couple is like, man, is, will this woman ever let us talk? <laughs> Again, could just be projecting, of course, it probably is. But my point is, is that the technique as I use it is is very different from the way that Sue Johnson uses it and probably different from the way other people use it. So just, you know, take all everything that I'm saying uh, with that in mind. Um, now, this isn't to say that I'm one of those therapists who just sits back and never says anything. It's, it's far from that. I'm actually pretty active when it comes to couples therapy, but not as, not nearly as active as Sue Johnson is. Anyway, EFT is often described as a brief therapy and it's sometimes described as just needing about 20 sessions. But uh, I, I'm always skeptical of that because the people that I've worked with, although we could have terminated after 20 sessions, I find that people need therapy for a long period of time in my experience. For instance, with couples that I see, uh, a lot of them are doing okay, but they will often express to me that they need at least monthly or maybe every month, every other month, they need to come in and have a refresher. And so so the way I do it, there is no time limit to things. And I think I've said before on the podcast that most of my clients are long-term, meaning that I'm guessing all of my current clients I've been seeing for at least a year and and some clients I've been seeing for many years, so so my I, I there's I, I don't use any brief therapy ever, <laughs> unless I'm under contract to only see a client for a short amount of time, which I've been which has happened before. But even then, I, I don't really think of myself as like okay, six sessions and then I'll be done, you know, because I, I just don't find that is often the case. Having said that, there are rare clients where that actually works. Like I, I've, I've used a brief form of PTSD uh, behaviorist treatment, exposure therapy treatment that uh, it, I've found to be effective within five to 10 sessions and s- to eliminate PTSD. So anyway, my point is, is that EFT is considered to be a 20 session ish brief therapy. All right. So what do EFT therapists do? What's their stance? Well, their stance is to be collaborative when possible. And they also try to attend to the present emotion. They try to be in the now. They, they try to avoid talking about the past. They try, to, they try to facilitate in the moment expressions of emotion that are functional and in the moment awareness. They're, they're not so interested in talking about like, a fight that happened last month or something. And they're particularly not interested in talking about things that happened decades prior. In in this session, they'll try to stimulate in the now experiencing. 
um, that can, they believe that that's where change occurs. They believe that interpreting the past or modifying your cognitions or modifying your behaviors, that, that, isn't, that isn't what helps because you're up in your head. You need to, as Gestalt therapy and as experiential therapies uh, influenced them, Greenberg and Johnson, they're, they're big proponents of in-the-now experiences as the, as the thing that changes people. Uh, EFT therapists are interested in the relationship with the therapist. The, again, because it comes from Rogers, they're very interested in a strong relationship between therapist and client. They want there to be a lot of warmth and a lot of empathy and a lot of positive regard. Uh, EFT therapists are interested to some extent about the relationship history of the client. So, so they'll say, you know, what have, what have your relationships been like and, and what is your interaction cycle typically? And if, and if the couple, and if, you know, someone is coming in talking about conflict, then, then the therapist wants to find out what that cycle exactly looks like, including the emotions as people experience them, including their primary emotions. Um, now, after those things are done, uh, the, we, we get to the core of the technique of EFT, which is emotional awareness and emotional regulation. It's really quite simple. It's a particular brand of emotional regulation, but it's, but it's just emotional regulation, as is something that is used by many different therapies. But emotional awareness of uh, your body, knowing how your body uh, feels when you experience an emotion. And this can take a long time for people to develop awareness of that. And EFT therapists are interested in helping people acknowledge emotions that they don't normally acknowledge. And they want to help people understand how those emotions affect relationships with other people. For instance, becoming aware of your hurt and how your hurt is transformed into anger and how your anger is communicated, all that kind of stuff. And EFT is also interested in helping people transform an emotion into a preferred emotion. So not only just emotional regulation and awareness, but also like figuring out it, it. So in individual therapy, someone says, I'm afraid of my abusive boss. My, my boss abuses me and I'm afraid of him. And the therapist might say, well, let's explore that. You know, So when you are interacting with your boss and your boss is being mean to you and you're experiencing fear, your fear compels you to sort of run away which causes your boss to be more critical of you. Well, what if you were to transform that fear into anger and one that would motivate you to take action and to, to meet up front with your boss and to tell your boss to back off at times? Maybe, maybe that would be more functional for you. So it's about transforming emotions, awareness of emotions. There, there's a lot of different types of discussions that can happen around emotions in emotion-focused therapy. Also, since it came from Gestalt and Les Greenberg was really, and Susan Johnson were both really interested in Gestalt work, there's a lot of chair work. Gestalt people know chair work. For instance, regarding emotions, a therapist might, with an individual, might do a two chair work regarding opposing emotions. So, for instance, you have a client who is very self critical. And so you ask the client, okay, let's do a two chair exercise. So sit in this chair, and I want, when you're sitting in this chair, I want you to embody your self-critical voice, and I, and I, want, you, and I want you to imagine that you're sitting in the other chair, and you're, you're telling the other person off. 
So the client sits in the chair and says, you're stupid, you're dumb, everything you say is dumb, and you're lazy, and you're not smart, and you're not pretty enough, and you're fat, and all this stuff. And then you take the person and you say, okay, so, so this chair is the self-critical side. Now let's put you in the other chair and have you respond to the self-critical side. And then the person says, okay. And they sit in the other chair and they're still like, how dare you say these things about me? I'm a good person. This is awful that you're doing. And, and you go back and forth between those two chairs until a resolution occurs. And it's usually not engineered by the therapist. Usually a resolution just emerges as you engage in that two-chair two work. A lot of people don't know that EFT involves chair work like Gestalt, but it, but it does. Okay. So emotional regulation, emotional awareness, huge and emotion-focused therapy, which would make sense. Also attachment, obviously, as we've been talking about. So you want to get clients to know their attachment needs, get clients to accept their attachment needs and to accept each other's attachment needs and to facilitate expression of attachment needs between people, which I've already explained. Also, there is, a, there is some amount of processing of the past, even though they're not super interested in the past. There is a, there is a opportunity there. EFT, certain brands of EFT will process past experiences. The, the idea goes is that until the emotion is fully expressed, it will not go away. And so that's part of that. So if, if someone, say, was abused as a child and was never given the opportunity to express and to feel and process their emotions, the EFT therapist might engage in that activity with that person. And EFT is also big on creating new patterns of emotions and new patterns of interactions and a new structure, a new routine of how you understand your emotions, express your emotions, and how interactions of, emo of the emotional nature happen between people. So they're very interested in establishing a routine about that. Okay. So, so that's the technique. And again, it's complicated. If you're, if you're not a therapist, you'd really have to see it in action is my guess. Um, and if you're a therapist, then you probably can sort of fill in the gaps. But anyway, let's go to the evidence. There's a lot of debate in the psychotherapeutic world about what constitutes evidence, what are the evidence-based therapies, what is considered to be good evidence of a theory being effective, uh, are some researchers biased, uh, and, and some people even ask the question, look, does therapy even lend itself to an empirical examination? Can, can we even evaluate the effectiveness of something that's so squishy as, as psychotherapy and of human nature? And so without going into all that debate, because uh, actually one of the patrons who wrote in was, was saying something like, what's the evidence? And the evidence that I've seen has been a bit dubious. And I could go on and on about that, but in a, in a nutshell, I know it is absolutely effective, <laughs> and I know I am an N of one, but I'm here to tell you that when in my work with people, when I embody what I used to call just general humanistic satirian therapy, but what is now called emotionally focused, emotion-focused therapy, when I use this, this technique, when I think in this way with my clients, it is so effective with people. It is the probably the only way to get at what is the core of the issue, which is our attachment needs. 
every every problem that I've seen in couples and families at least has some, if not entirely, the issue is their feelings of hurt, their feelings of a, of like rejection and abandonment from people in their family, and how they feel about that and their secondary emotions about that and how they communicate those emotions and what those communications do to other people to perpetuate the rejection and the abandonment. It is, it is such a central thing. So, but there are studies looking at the effectiveness of EFT and there, they actually, uh, Johnson and Greenberg actually developed a manualized treatment protocol for depression that has been shown to be absolutely effective. The American Psychological Association considers this manualized treatment to be uh, effective for the, the treatment of depression. You know, when you think about the evidence-based treatments for depression, you think CBT, right? Well, EFT is up there. In, in fact, some studies say EFT is more effective than CBT. I'm guessing Overall, if you if you did if you looked at all the studies, I'm guessing EFT is not more effective than CBT, but it, it's absolutely something that can be used. Again, as I said earlier, it if someone's just depressed and it's not necessarily related to their relationships, then I'm guessing CBT is more indicated. But if their depression is related to past feelings and current feelings of rejection and being hurt by other people, then EFT can be very effective. Because not only does it help people to understand their emotions and validate their emotions and to help them not feel hopeless, but it also has a model for how to regulate relationships. And CBT doesn't have a a huge tradition in that. It's more individual, if that makes any sense. EFT has been shown to be effective with trauma, which is interesting. It's been shown to be effective with interpersonal injuries, which makes sense. It's been researched extensively when it comes to couples therapy and is absolutely effective with couples therapy. And it's, it's been tested in a number of different areas, including avoidant personality disorder, which is interesting, you know, because it's uh, presumably a reaction. Avoidant personality disorder is a reaction to attachment disruption. Okay. So let me conclude. I use this all the time. In couple and family therapy, and and also with my individual clients. So, a client, individual client, might come to me, and uh, and begin because the majority of my clients, if not all of them, are talk. They present relationship problems to me, and that's why they're there to talk with me. I and a lot of private practice clients are along these lines. I it, it will talk with them. So let's say I have an individual client and and they're saying that their marriage is not going well. Well, eventually I'm going to get to talking with them about, okay, so what happened this week? Well, my wife, she and I got in this big fight and, you know, I, I really don't know what's happening. I say, okay, well, let's break down the fight. Tell, tell me what happened. You know, and you might say, well, I was, I was at work. I came home from work and I was, I was really just fried. And my wife was, I think she was kind of stressed out and she was with the kids and she just immediately started yelling at me and I just couldn't take it. And so I'm like, fuck this shit. And so I left and I went to the bar and I had a couple of drinks. And when I got home, my wife wasn't going to talk to me and she gave me the silent treatment for four days. Okay. 
So this is a very common scenario, by the way. But what I would do with the person, okay, let's break this down. Okay, so you're you're at work and you're, or you're coming home from work and you're stressed out. Were were you thinking about your wife at all? Was was she, maybe she wasn't on your mind or, or or was she on your mind? And he'll be like, well, yeah, I mean, I, on my way home from work, I was like, my wife, you know, she's always on my ass about something, and I know as soon as I walk in the door, she's going to start yelling at me. And then I'd be like, okay, let's break that down. Let's let's really look at that. So as you're driving home from work, you have a fleeting thought of what is my wife going to get on me at my ass about this time? Okay. How did you feel about that? Well, what was the emotion? So it's again, motion focused. What was your, what was your emotion about this? It's like, well, I, I felt, uh, angry cause it's just like this bullshit, you know, like I work hard all day and I don't need to be nagged at when I get home. Okay. So, and I would say, okay, so you felt angry. What else did you feel? And like, oh, I don't know, nothing, just, just frustrated, angry. It's, you know, it's bullshit. And I might be like, well, let's, let's really look at other possible emotions you might have felt. And so we might spend, a, you know, maybe s- several sessions on trying to help him develop an understanding that he might have also been hurt. And so he might say, well, I, I guess I was a little hurt because I work really hard and it, it just hurts my feelings to not be appreciated and for her not to understand that I just need to veg when I get home for about an hour. It's just, it hurts my feelings that she just, it, it seems like she doesn't even care about my needs. So like, okay, it's very mature of you to be able to identify that. It's, that's, that's that primary emotion. I might even use that language. I might say, you know, the, that hurt, that's the primary emotion. The secondary emotion is your anger, you know, because your anger is in response to that hurt. Okay. So you walk in the door and you're already pre-angry. You're pre-hurt and you're pre-angry. How do you think your wife perceives you as you walk in the door? Well, I don't know. Maybe she, maybe she sees me in a bad mood. Yeah, okay. Now let's go into her mind. Now, again, she's not in therapy because it's individual therapy. But this is how I always operate on a systemic level. So I'd say, well, how do you think your wife, what do you think your wife sees in that moment? Well, I don't know. She just sees me walk in the door. Well, Let's really try to get into her shoes. What do you think is going on inside of her mind? And again, this could take several sessions, but eventually we might get to a point where he says, well, I'm guessing that my wife, she's stressed out. She, she's been working all day. She got home a little bit before me. She's dealing with the kids. And, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing she probably, she, she's always wanting a connection with me. And so I'm guessing she wanted a connection with me. Okay. So she wanted a connection with you. How do you think she was feeling at the time? Well, she's probably feeling hurt herself because we haven't been connecting in a while. And she probably felt hurt because when I walked in the door, I was already in a bad mood and, and she might've interpreted that as me being uh, distant from her specifically, which is not the case. I was just, I was just worried that she was going to yell at me, which she ended up yelling at me about. And then she got hurt and then she transformed that into anger and then she lashed out at me and then that confirmed my feelings and hurt my feelings even more and I told her to back off and why does she always do this and I told her that that's you know all she does is nag me and you know this is bullshit I should just stay at work all day and then she said we haven't had a good marriage in five years and why am I even married to you? Which really hurt my feelings and made me angry, which said, well, fine, let's get a divorce. And so 
I'm talking with this individual and we're, we're walking through that interaction and we're trying to understand his emotions and his secondary emotions and his behavior and his way of communicating uh, his emotions. And then we're, we're trying to understand uh, her emotions and which are very almost identical to his and how she transforms her feelings into anger and how she ends up communicating those things in a, in a dysfunctional way. And so with this individual, I say, okay, so now we know the pattern and now we, and with this knowledge is power and now we can change it. So next time this happens on your way home from work, you notice that you're feeling worried that she's going to yell at you and, and you're feeling sort of pre hurt that she's going to yell at you, even though she hasn't yelled at you yet. So, so you just want to transform that a little bit and really look at that. In fact, I'm guessing that really what you're feeling is a worry of rejection, a worry of abandonment, and what you really want is a, a connection with your wife. Uh, you might want to veg when you get home, you know, that, that might be true, but you also might want your wife to, you know, smile and say, oh, I'm glad to see you. Um, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I have to veg. And she's like, okay, fine, great. And you just, you just want that, that togetherness, like you're on the same team. And so you might want to notice that as you're driving home. Okay, and then when you get home and you walk in the house, how can you have compassion for her state of mind in that moment? So you walk in the house and she's looking, she's looking a little tense, and so in that moment, what do you say? How do you communicate? Well, one way, one thing you could say is, honey, I love you. And I, as you know, I just need to veg. And as soon as I'm done vegging for an hour, then I want to, I want to have some together time with you. And I want to connect with you because I've been missing that. But, but I need an hour and, you know, just, just give me an hour in front of my computer and, and I just need to decompress about work and stuff. Is that okay, honey? And then, She's, and then she says, oh, wow, he wants to connect later? Wow, I've, he never talks like that. That really makes me feel good. It really makes me feel like he loves me and that, he's, that we're attached and that we're understanding each other. And so, sure, go veg for an hour, you know? And then, and then when that hour is up, then you reach out to her and she responds well. And then that whole hurt, anger, perpetuating cycle is completely subverted, even though I've only been working with one person. Now, this is, some, this, is a, this is a simplistic way of describing it, but if people actually do this, I'm telling you 100% of the time it works. The problem is that it's really hard for people to achieve this. So I'm working with this client and I'm saying, okay, next time this happens, awareness of emotions, walk in the door, say you love your wife, say you need an hour break and say you'll connect later and like really try to respond in, in an empathic way. It doesn't take a lot of time and it actually doesn't take that much effort. And the guy will be, oh yeah, good idea. Well, he'll go home. He won't do it. Why? Not because he's an asshole or he hates me or he's resistant. It's because our emotional schemas based on our past are so powerful that it's really hard to override them. And that's why a lot of times you have to bring in that spouse to work on it because you, you need to have hands-on, so to speak, with those people as they're having those interactions so you can really kind of strong-arm them <laughs> into interacting in a functional way so that they can see the power of it and, and it can perpetuate a new pattern that they can generalize outside of the session. And maybe that's why Susan Johnson talks so much in sessions because she's really trying to, in a therapeutic way, try to engineer a healthy interaction between them that they can 
learn from and, and perpetuate outside of the session. I don't know. So the other thing I said that I would talk about is how you can use EFT on yourself. Well, everything I've been talking about, it you can use on yourself. I use it on myself all the time. I mean, how many times am I angry at someone for for doing something? You know, I'm like, I can't believe that person said that at that meeting, or I can't believe, uh, you know, that YouTube commenter said that thing. Well, when I back it up and I say, okay, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Well, I'm, I'm guessing based on experience that I'm hurt and I'm feeling rejected or I'm feeling criticized or I'm feeling abandoned or I'm, I'm feeling as though I might lose people who are close to me. That's probably what it is, right? And then I think, yeah, actually, that, that, that is what I'm feeling. I'm feeling, my feelings are hurt. And I, and I, and I know from experience that that leads to anger. And, and so I'm transforming that hurt feeling into anger. And so instantly, just with that knowledge, I, my anger goes away. And I, I attend to my own feelings of hurt in a non-judgmental, accepting way. And I'm just like, oh, okay, that, that's how I feel. And then I think, okay, what should I do? Now, sometimes I just, that's all I do. That's, that's all I need. But other times I, I will say, well, I probably should reach out to the person and, and tell them how they made me feel because I, I don't want this to happen again. And I, and I got a little angry with that person. And so I, I want to explain. So I, I'll go back to them and I'll say, so the other day, when we had this interaction and I got angry at you, I just want to apologize because I wasn't, it wasn't fair that I was angry. What I should have told you at the time, which is what I want to tell you now is actually what you did to hurt my feelings. And here's how it hurt my feelings. And then invariably the other person will get defensive because we've all been taught to be defensive and they'll be like, what do you mean? You're, how come your feelings are that stupid? (laughs) You know? And I said, and because I've been through it so many times, I'm like, well, okay, you know, I get that you're defensive. That's fine. But I I really, all I need you to do is just tell me that you understand that my feelings are hurt and that I, and that you don't want it, that you're, you don't want to do that again. I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm not super angry. I'm just, I'm just telling you like, my emotional reaction at the time. And maybe it's, maybe I'm fucked up. Maybe there's something wrong with me, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that that's how I felt. And then, and then the other person, you know, Oh, okay. So I'm not being accused of anything. All right. I'll calm down. So I hurt your feelings. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to do that again. Now, if you rinse and repeat this process a thousand times, the amount of trust that is built between people is so strong the amount of instant gratification for attachment needs is so is facilitated. The reduction of conflict. I can't tell you how this model has, for the most part, eliminated conflict in my life. Because <laughs> there's no reason to fight anymore. There's no reason for me to even be angry. I only need to express how my feelings are hurt. And... And then I I just learn to depend or trust that other people will have compassion for me because they almost always do, and that they'll that they'll adjust. And that process is is a wonderful thing to engage in. And so for yourself, think about that. Become aware of your emotions. Become aware of how your body feels when you're hurt. 
and how your body feels when you're angry. Become aware of the, the kinds of things that hurt your feelings and why they hurt your feelings. And then become aware of how to identify that hurt feeling as fast as possible and then how to communicate that, that hurt feeling to people when you think it's necessary. And how to socialize the other person into having a functional conversation about hurt feelings and about um, that it's not their fault, which is a big part of it. You know, it, it's one thing to say to someone, look, what you did, it hurt my feelings. I, I don't I don't know if it's you or it's me. I'm not accusing you of anything. You know, maybe maybe it's my weird head. I don't know. But I'm just here to tell you that whatever happened, it hurt my feelings. You say it that way, most people are cool with it. But if you say it in a different way, like, you know, yesterday when you said that, that it really hurt my feelings, you know, like that really hurt my feelings. And I can't believe you said that to me. So even though you're using the language of EFT doesn't mean that it's being communicated in a functional way. And so it has to, you have to own your own feelings and you have to, you have to avoid, because again, when you accuse someone of something, they get hurt because they're worried that you're going to reject them. That's, that's the beauty of EFT is like you understand that everything is precipitated by a worry of being abandoned, which is completely ignored and never talked about. So when I feel hurt by someone and I even subtly lash out to them, uh, the basis of the reason why I'm lashing out is because I have a baseline fear of being rejected and abandoned. But by me even just subtly criticizing the other person, they now also feel worried about being rejected and abandoned by me, which is ironic because I'm terrified right now about them leaving me. But because of the way I approached it, I've now injected that feeling into them by making them terrified that I'm going to leave them, even though that's the last thing on my mind. And so now they're terrified that I'm going to leave them. And then they get hurt and they transform that into anger. And then they attack me. And then it just escalates from there. And we both leave that interaction feeling a billion times worse and a billion times more terrified that the other person's going to leave us when, in fact, the whole thing fucking began when one or both of us had a very small feeling that the other person was going to leave us or had, they were going to reject us. One of the most, one of the biggest realizations I've learned about humans is regardless of how strong a relationship is, we are a, a hair, a hair's breadth away from paranoia that the other person is going to leave us. We've all been hurt. We've all been, we've all been rejected. We've all been dumped. We've all been abandoned to some extent. Now for people who have been abandoned, particularly they're, you know, they, they really worry about this, but even people who are securely attached have bouts of the, of these feelings. And so one, what, what this, what this made me realize is, is, you know, is just how pervasive that feeling of that worry of abandonment is. And, and, Two, how, how little everyone is aware of it. Three, how our culture completely forces people to suppress and deny this reality. Four, how it motivates our behavior and how it motivates us in so many ways. And, I mean, you can even take it up to like the, the political level in terms of the way politicians talk to each other. And, you know, they're supposed to be all buttoned up and and all professional and whatnot. But I would guess that if I really investigated 
Trump and everyone else, that a lot of the behavior that they do that bothers people has to do with this feeling of rejection and their efforts to deny it or to account for it. For instance, acting arrogant is a defense against your worry that people are going to reject you. If you act arrogant, you act like, I don't care what you think, and I don't care if you accept me or reject me. But but it's just a defense against the fact that the person deeply worries about being rejected and deeply worries about being uh, humiliated or made fun of or ostracized or whatever. And so uh, it's a it's a powerful idea, and it all and it has its roots in our biological need for attachment, and our very likely evolved biological need for acceptance by the tribe, and, and particularly acceptance by people close to us. And it, it just gets screwed up in so many different ways. And because I understand this, I have been able to help so many people. I, I, have, I have people, when I'm enacting this brand of therapy, whether you call it EFT or Satyrian or humanistic or experiential or gestalt or whatever, when, I, when I'm doing this sort of thing, I'll, I'll have clients look at me and I'm like, oh my God, you've, you've cracked the code. How did, you, how did you know that, that that's what I was feeling? And I'll say, because all my clients are going through this. Every one of and I go through this. And they're like, man, you know, it, it really explains a lot. And I'm like, yeah, it does. And so it, it's, it's a powerful idea, EFT. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Patrons, love you so much. Let me know what you think. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to psychologyinseattle.com, go to the contact us page, fill out the, the form. Again, I'm going to be sending swag to patrons John in New Jersey, Kelly in New Hampshire, Dr. Glenn in California, Annie in Texas, and Jamie in Tacoma. Uh, love you so much, guys. Talk to you later, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. And attend to your emotions and attend to other people's attachment needs because we all deserve that. Thank you.